This is not Thunderdome. <laughs> no, it is. Although it probably should be. Hey, raggedy man. It's, uh, what's what's the other one with, uh, what's her name? Cat Miss. The Hunger Games? Yeah, Hunger Games. Thank you. Yeah, it's Hunger <laughs> Games. <laughs> so only one of us can leave this episode tonight. Hey, Prog fans, welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I am joined by Craig and Lee. We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at UP3Show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This makes sure that other fellow prog-minded people can find the show. As we are wont to do, uh, we like to catch up a little bit. So I'll start with you, Craig. What have you been doing since we talked last time? Well, it's Thanksgiving weekend just passed, put it in perspective, and I just spent a week in upstate New York. I rented a house on the Hudson River, and uh, we had my wife, my two daughters, a couple of friends, and we had a great turkey feast. And I learned an amazing thing on this trip that I want to share with you. The Hudson River flows in both directions. I saw that on your Facebook post. How freaking cool is that? That is freaking cool. So I want to be clear, you were in upstate New York on purpose? Uh, On purpose in November? (laughs) No, my daughter lives in upstate New York. My other daughter lives in Brooklyn. So we met in mid-upstate New York, kind of a neutral area, and um, just had a great time. It was wonderful. Awesome. And how about you, Lee? I just got back from Cancun, Mexico. Freezing. Didn't have to worry about that. (laughs) Yeah, had a great time, sat on the beach, drank overpriced drinks with watered down alcohol and just had a great time with the family nice that's really cool i have to say as i was getting ready to board the plane to albany where it said the temperature was like in the low 30s i got on facebook and saw you standing in a pool with a drink in your hand yes and i felt sad for me Uh, for yourself (laughs) you made the wrong choice Craig. (laughs) i made a bad choice um, so for me, I spent one of the pa- recent weekends, I spent it in LA, just kind of hanging out, seeing some friends, doing stuff like that. And then this past week, uh, the week of Thanksgiving, we had some family come in, which was actually different, but they drove down from where they live and we spent some time with them, which we didn't get the chance to do in 2020 because of COVID. Right. It's awesome. But we also like to go around and check in on news and what we've been listening to. You know, we were joking before we started recording that uh, when Lee has kind of become our, our news guy, so I'll toss it to <laughs> Lee for a moment and give us some news, and then we'll talk about other upcoming releases that we're in, all interested in. What's coming in the prog news? Biggest thing is David Logden of Big Big Train has died. I saw that. Singer and multi-instrumentalist was 56. Very, very sad and sudden news, and here's I can tell it was like a traumatic fall at his house so anyway lots of tributes coming out and don't know what's going to happen with big big train in the tour yet diego tejeda has announced that he is leaving haken 
that sounds like a mutual decision. Yeah. Interesting because it's been rumored for literally a year, I think, but it has now been confirmed. So we wish Diego the best. Um, his solo work is awesome. So no doubt we'll still be hearing from him and absolutely wait and see who joins Haken for keys. New Jethro Tull has been previewed. The new album, The Zealot Gene, will be out in January. And they premiered a single called Shoshana Sleeping. And I think, Craig, you listened to a lot of that, didn't you? Yeah, I liked it. Very true to form. The Kite Experiment. This is a new trio with John Mitchell, Craig Bundell, and Chris Hargrave. They have released a teaser on YouTube. It's, it's sort of like a compilation teaser, so it's just... A few minutes fading in and out of different songs. But what is in there, I really like. The album is called Atmospherics, and it will be coming out in July. So, New Tangerine Dream is coming out November 26th. Actually, should already be out. I haven't found it yet. EP called Probe 6-8 that I will be looking for. New Porcupine Tree has been announced coming in June. I'm super stoked for that. An album called Closure slash Continuation. And they premiered a single called Harridan that I like quite a bit. Kayak has announced a farewell tour. It's all European dates. And they are touring with a band called La Soie. New Animals as Leaders, Perhesia, P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A, is going to be released March 25th. Mm -hmm. And they've released a new single called The Problem of Other Minds. And I'm super stoked for that one as well. And then finally, I've been harping on this, but New Marillion, An Hour Before It's Dark, is coming out March 4th, and they released a teaser called Be Hard on Yourself that I really enjoyed. It really kind of reminded me of Marbles. Very lush and intricate, kind of lengthy, and Mm -hmm. those are the ones I know about. Over to you for the weather, Craig. (laughs) Today's forecast, dark. (laughs) Followed by extended periods of light. (laughs) Um, the only ones I, I know of, and you hit one, Lee, which was the Jethro Tull release, and so I'm glad you hit that one. But um, a band that I've touched on in my own listening every once in a while, I never really considered them prog, but I guess the rest of the community does, is the band Cynic. They have a new album called Ascension Codes coming out. Yes. Um, and then the other one is, um, you're going to be hearing a lot from me about this in the c- upcoming months, folks. It's going to be the new Star One record. So... Star One has their new album, Revel in Time. I just saw that there is now an actual release date. Um, and so the release date looks like February 18th of 22. And if you want to get in on the pre-order, the pre-orders will be happening December 17th of this year of 21. Okay. The last two times that Arion, in this case, um, had a pre-release it basically broke the pre-order servers. Right. And so a lot of people didn't get their orders placed. So be prepared for that. But there is a, a couple of singles out now. Uh, so one was Lost Children of the Universe, which had Roy fucking Khan on it, which was an amazing uh, single. And now there is another new single called Fate of Man, um, which has Brittany Slays of Unleash the Archers on it. And she is amazing. That was great. I really like that one. Every week or a couple of days, Aryan is putting out like a new little guest, the performer video. And I think we're up to like, dozen and a half people and one of the things that i'm really excited about with this album is going to be a double disc and they're going to have all of the tracks on one disc with one set of performers and then on the second discs it's the exact same tracks with different performers 
like singing the same parts. I love that Aryan does this kind of experimental stuff. It's not going to be like B-sides or or, or demos. It's going to be the like a fully produced version of the song, just with different vocalists. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to it. it sounds kind of transatlantic-y. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe they're going to do what Transatlantic thought they were doing. Right. Um, so. <laughs> yep. That's all I've got for news and stuff and upcoming releases. Now to sports. <laughs> so uh, is there anything you guys have been particularly listening to before we get into the episode tonight? Two things. First of all, I went and bought Thrack and The Power to Believe after listening to you, Tony, because I wanted to catch up on those. So I've been listening to Thrack quite a bit. But I've been listening to, it's new for me, it's not a new band, uh, called Outrun the Sunlight, and they have a new album called A Vast Field of Silence. They did a premiere on Louder Sound, and I really enjoyed the two tracks they premiered there, so went and bought the whole album. This is very similar to Archeco, and so I'm really kind of deep diving into this genre lately, really enjoying that band. Nice. And what about you, Craig? I got three things. I bought an EP from Jellyfish, found this EP from them called uh, Jellyfish Comes Alive. It's uh, three originals and then a couple of Beatles covers. Mm. Uh, I was recorded about 20 years ago. I always liked that band. I think they were really great for their first album. The second album was pretty good. And then they just kind of crashed and burned. Mm. But it's great to hear them live. Um, I've been listening to Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, since we talked about it a bunch during a previous episode. I thought, you know, I'm going to just kind of dig into that. And it's, it really is as great as they say. That's his quintuple platinum jazz album that we talked about a few months back. Uh, really enjoying it. There's a couple tunes that, are, that have become jazz standards, and I'm kind of trying to learn them. Uh, then another thing I've really been enjoying is, you know, I've been really kind of working this Instagram thing. And the number of musicians, bands, artists that have been reaching out to us um, to uh, listen to their music. I've been listening to some of it, and I'm really enjoying it. So I think uh, future episodes would be nice to start highlighting some of that. Awesome. We should probably do an episode of just like people that we've reached out to or have reached out to us. That's a great idea. I think we're starting to develop a little bit of a menagerie of people that know of the show, and it'd be nice to spend some time spotlighting them. Yeah, the messages we got on Instagram are just all so nice. It's wonderful to hear. Um, the guy from uh, Siberia reached out. He had some music that was really great. Jeez, we got to promote him. Yeah. Dude's like working uphill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of people send links or Bandcamp things or SoundCloud stuff, and I've really been enjoying it. Very, very diverse. Yeah, awesome. I hate to admit this, but I haven't really listened to a lot of music since we last talked because all of my work days have been just so packed with meetings that there's no time to listen to music during the day, and then I get to the evening and it's family time. But over the past week or so, while I had some more time off for Thanksgiving, I went back and I was picking up the most recent Frost release, Day and Age, and I was talking to you guys about this. That album is just amazing, astonishing. I can't find any defect in it. I think this is a watershed album. It might even be for some people, like people think of like images and words pops into the zeitgeist or where certain Jethro Tull or... Uh, King Crimson albums or Marillion albums are. I think that this album is like that. It's people are going to know where that album is and it's going to be a reference point. I hope you're right because I just think that is absolutely a perfect album. It's it is so wonderful. I yeah wish more people listen to it. 
Prod Magazine is doing their readers poll right now, and I just voted that album as best album of the year. Yeah. I agree. And Jim and John, if you're listening to this, well, first, thank you for listening to this. But two, <laughs> you just knocked it out of the park with this album, guys. Oh, wait, and three, is... call us so we can interview you. Yeah, <laughs> yes. come on, come on by. Come on, John's John, let's got a, talk. Come on, Jim. John, John Mitchell has all kinds of time on his hand. Clearly, he's only in like 20 bands. Well, obviously, there's 24 hours a day, so he's got at least four hours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One, everybody's got to have stop for meals. Yeah. Without further ado, let's go talk about King Crimson. That, of course, is King Crimson, and that's what we're going to talk about through this episode. And we should start by saying that none of the three of us are King Crimson experts. I think that's a safe assumption. I would say I'm a, I'm a huge fan, but I'm not a scholar. Lee, I feel bad for opening with that song because you have a, a love-hate relationship with the Mellotron. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to leave the Mellotron comment off in the corner. <laughs> but as far as Crimson goes, yeah, you're right. Liked him a lot early days with Greg Lake and, you know, then John Wetton and all that. Mm-hmm. And loved him with Bruford, but kind of hit and miss. Yeah, yeah. Certainly not an expert either. Well, I've had a lot of fun immersing myself in their catalog over the past couple of weeks. Cool. They've been around since 1969. A lot of people think that King Crimson is the big bang of prog rock. I don't even know if they think that, but you hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. Them, yes, and Genesis kind of all started around the same time in the same area. King Crimson has 13 studio albums over 52 years, which is not terribly prolific, I guess. Yeah, but if you add the projects in there, it's a lot more than that. Oh, if you add the projects and the live albums, it's it's a lot at that point. Well, I mean, I kind of think it's fine with quality over quantity, though. I agree with that. I don't want to say they've kept up a level of quality, but they've kept up a level of integrity. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And by the way, we say they when we talk about King Crimson. It's Fripp. King Crimson is kind of like Fripp's 52-year musical experiment. Crimson started out as a band, you know, like Genesis was a band, and Yes was a band, but it always ended up everybody would quit at one time or another because they couldn't get along with Robert. I almost think of it as a, a bunch of Robert Fripp's solo albums with guest musicians that sometimes got songwriting credits. Is that documented that it was conflict with Robert Fripp that caused people to leave? Or is that like more of a conjecture? Because I've never heard that before. And if that's true, that really puts some puzzle pieces in the place for me. Different people left for different reasons, but many of them were personality reasons. And in the early days, he was still trying to sort of figure out what the band was going to be and what direction they were going to take. When you're 23 and you're just trying to find musicians, you know, everybody kind of has like a sort of a different idea of what they want to be when they grow up. So the way I think I'd like to talk about this is to break it up into different time periods. Mm -hmm. In different periods, there were different lineups with some consistency in personnel, some consistency in the sound of the music. The first segment is 1968 to 1972, where you have the first four albums, Court of the Crimson King, Wake Up Poseidon, Lizards, and Islands. And that first song we just played was from Court of the Crimson King. 
1969 saw King Crimson form, get a record deal, put out a record, it get very popular, and then most of the people quit the band by the end of the year. Yeah. In fact, Greg Lake and Fripp founded King Crimson, and then Lake left after the first album to join the LP. Yeah. And Peter Sinfield was part of it, too. When I had my brain salad surgery album and read the liner notes cover to cover and top to bottom, because I was an ELP nerd, Carnival 9 was Emerson Lake and Sinfield. Yes. I just never thought about it until not many years ago when I saw that he was the lyricist. He was. He was the Bernie Taupin of King Crimson. That's interesting. Actually, Robert Fripp was Greg Lake's roadie. That's how we met him. Really? He was carrying Greg Lake's crap for a show. I didn't know that. So he was carrying his stuff for a gig that Greg Lake was playing. Nobody showed up to the show. <laughs> Many of us can relate to that. Uh, yep. Yeah. So they ended up just jamming together and decided to just start playing together. Wow. That's really cool. One of the other interesting things about uh, Court of the Crimson King is my wife likes it. Wait, what? Okay. What do you think that means? <laughs> I was listening to it and she's like, wow, that's really cool. What is that stuff? Go figure. I got to give your wife total props because the one time I let my wife really listen to this, we got to where we were going in the car. There was an awkward silence and she said, Tony, can I drive next time? Because <laughs> your music. Because <laughs> I want control over the radio. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So anyway, in this first period, their next album was called Wake of Poseidon. So everybody kind of quit the band, so it was really just Fripp and Sinfield writing songs, and they had people show up and play with them. And again, this is 1970. I still think it's the Fripp experiment, trying to figure out what he's doing. And if you listen to it, it's kind of like avant-garde sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play a little clip of a song called Cat Food. I feel like I could play that. That's got an Emerson Lake and Palmer feel to it to me. Mm -hmm. It kind of does. And it's got a Greg Lake sound. I don't know if Greg Lake is the one singing. Yeah, he had quit, but he did agree to come back and do the vocals. One of the things that jumped out at me as I was listening to what I have available in prep is that in these early records, the production quality is very bright. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably because they were mastering and mixing for LPs where you lose the low end and so you end up more high end. Even on the more modern stuff, I think that they're making a selective choice to do that. I know they had many different producers, and I know they played around in the studio a lot with what sound they were wanting to get. And they've fired producers and said, oh, we're just going to do this ourselves. Were they self-produced? At times. Do you have any comment you care to make about the Mellotron specifically? We kind of skipped over that really quickly. I got to be honest, I struggle a little bit with King Crimson's choice of instrumentation. You say more about that. Well, first of all, I like the Mellotron. Okay. I think it's a very distinctive sound. I've always liked it. But there's always like a sax player. There's always a wind section. Yes. I almost feel like Robert Fripp was like trying to reinvent jazz or something like that or invent some new kind of jazz because of his instrumentation choices and the fact that there was always a sax player in there doing even 21st century schizoid man. Yeah. You know, it's got a freaking sax break in the middle. But why is that jazz to you? Because that just sounds like 
Prague to me, where we're going to take rock and try and add different instrumentation to it. I'm just thinking more along the lines of trying to get in Fripp's head a little bit, to be honest. So here's a little data point. One of the other guests on Wake of Poseidon was a guy named Mel Collins. Yes. Mm-hmm. On saxophone. And they're still pals. Yeah, we just saw him a couple months ago. Yep. He's the Tony Levin of sax, man. He's played with everybody. Yeah, he goes on to do a bunch of stuff with Camel, too. Does that sort of answer your question, Lee? Yeah, I was just more curious about your take on it. I just find that to be a really cheesy sound. You know, maybe not so much then, but especially now in the wake of good string pads. Yeah, it is pretty cheesy. And it's almost like the way he uses it in Crimson, it really does have a pretty high cheese factor. Well, in the other band they used a lot of Mellotron was the Moody Blues. Mm-hmm. And it's around the same time. But for me, that's just a very antique sound. I am the exact opposite of both of you. Like, I can't get enough Mellotron. It's like chewing gum foil to me. Audio foil. That's hilarious. By the way, uh, plug for a a website called DGM Live, Discipline Group Music or something like that. It's Robert Fripp's website that has a shit ton of information about King Crimson and just about every bootleg they could find is available up on that website. That's cool. I was able to find the bootleg of the show I saw on October 30th, 1981, and it's an awful recording, but it's still really cool. So what is that then, given that website is run by Fripp? I thought that they were anti-recording and bootleg. They make you pay money for it. (laughs) Oh. There's like 30-second clips, and if you want to buy the concert, you can buy the concert. Gotcha. Okay. He's all about monetizing. God bless him. Yeah, he was the Google algorithm before the Google algorithm. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There was a couple of pieces on this album that I thought were notable, too. The Peace Trilogy, and I used to listen to The Devil's Triangle a lot. Yeah. Because it was based on Gustav Holtz's The Planets. Mm-hmm. Fripp's doing this way before ELP will think about doing it. So uh, the next album in this phase is Lizard, 1970. I don't know much about Lizard. It's Fripp, Peter Sinfield on lyrics. Mel Collins is an official band member at this point. And then a rhythm section, Gary Haskell and Andy McCullough, who I've never heard of, and they quit at the end of recording that album. And this one was, again, kind of jazzy, kind of avant-garde. So let's play a clip from that. So that's part of Lizard Suite, and that is Musicians Among Us. Did you guys recognize the drum pattern in that? No. What is it? What was that? That was a bolero. Oh. Ding, diddly, ding, diddly, ding, diddly, 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 diddly. A lot of classical references in these early albums. Everybody was doing boleros around then. Emerson Lincoln Palmer had a Madden's bolero. Jeff Beck had Beck's bolero. Bo Derek had Ten's bolero. Oh, yeah. Ravel. What's also interesting about that is that even though the drums are what make it a bolero, the drums are so far back in the mix you can barely hear it. Interesting. According to Stephen Wilson, who did the uh, 5.1 remaster of this album, Lizard was really a Robert Fripp solo album. They had a band, but they were all fighting and not really getting along, and it was really just Robert Fripp telling people what to do. So how's that different from what Miles would do? (laughs) (laughs) There was some give and take in in the Miles Davis bands, is the way it seemed to me. So when did Court of the Crimson King come out in 69? October 69. And then Wake Up Poseidon was? May of 70. 
Lizard was December of 1970. And then Islands that we'll talk about in a second was sometime in 71. So like just under 24 months, they're going to have three, four albums. That's amazing productivity right there. Yeah. What's interesting is in this phase of King Crimson, it's all songwriting. These are songs that they wrote and charted and they had A sections and B sections and beginnings and ends. What's going to happen in their next incarnation beginning in 1972 they're going to start becoming a more improvisational band. Fripp is going to start his songwriting and creative process being built around improvisation more so than in these first four albums, which were all, like I say, songwriting. Interesting. And I sort of compare that to Genesis of the period. And we've talked about this before. You know, Genesis just never improvised. They were songwriters, and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. Go see him in concert, even. Here's the song. Here's the beginning. Here's the end. Here's the solo is even pre-planned. Well, they have to be good musicians because they can't dance. (laughs) God, I just threw up a little in my mouth. (laughs) Before we get into the uh, 72-75 improvisational phase, I do want to say one thing about Islands. They got new musicians, and one of the musicians on bass was a dude named Boz Burrell, Mm -hmm. who wasn't really a bass player. He was a guitar player, but wanted a singing bass player. So, trivia contest question. What band did he leave and then go join? No idea. Bad Company. No. Really? He was the bass player for Bad Company for a lot of years. So he played on one album and then hit the road just as uh, everybody else does. Wow. So moving on, chapter two. Is this the Bible according to Robert Fripp? (laughs) This is the Robert Fripp Bible according to Craig Abramson. I consider this the first classic lineup of King Crimson. Lark's Tongue and Aspic had Fripp, Wetton, Bill Bruford, David Cross, and Jamie Muir. But like I say, they did a lot of their writing by improvising, and they would do a lot of improvising in concert and then turn those into songs, mm-hmm. kind of like what Frank Zappa did a lot of. And that ended up being a good formula for him. So Lark's Tongue and Aspic is their first album, March 1973. As we know, it's kind of this sweet that has spanned a good chunk of their career. In fact, one of the last albums has Lark's Tongue and Aspic Part 4. There was a dude in the Lark's Tongue and Aspic band called Jamie Muir. His story is fascinating to me because he did percussion, even though Bill Bruford was in the band. But apparently he was also quite the character on stage, and he danced around, he was very animated, sometimes he used fake blood. And I think about that in the 1973 time frame, and I think about what Genesis was doing at the time, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, was he trying to do that? I don't know. You, you just kind of wonder. On the surface, you read that and you think, well, that sounds kind of schlocky. Yes. But they really liked Jamie Muir, as opposed to so many other band members. He was sort of a very philosophical guy. Him and Bill Bruford loved working together. Bill Bruford has so many complimentary things to say about the guy. But after this experience of recording this album, he uh, went off and became a monk. Man, working with Freb does not sound like a joy. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather be celibate than transcribing the Bible from Latin than working with this man. (laughs) He uh, is the person who coined the word Lark's Tongue and Aspic. Starless and Bible Black is a reference to literature, but is Lark's Tongue? Well, the title of which was coined by Muir, when asked by Fripp what the music sounded like, Muir said, why Lark's Tongue and Aspic, what else? You know what Aspic is? Isn't that like jelly? Aspic is, yeah, it's like clear gelatin. And so over in England, you can order chicken in Aspic, or 
Uh, okay. So it sounds like the stuff that gefilte fish is packed in. Yeah, kind of. So, I okay. mean, I always just thought it was like somebody said it and everybody giggled and they went, yeah, that's yeah. good. There he is. Sure. Okay. Here's another interesting thing. In March 1973, Jamie Muir was at Bill Bruford's wedding and he met John Anderson. So they get to talking and Jamie recommends that John read this book, Autobiography of a Yogi by a fellow named Paramahansa Yogananda. He's an Indian monk. And in that book, they talk about these four different aspects of Hinduism. So yes, and uh, specifically John Anderson at the time, they're trying to figure out what to follow up close to the edge with. Uh, So long story short, they took these four themes, these four aspects of Hinduism, turned each of them into an album side, and uh, it became Tales from Topographic Oceans. No shit. That's amazing. So now we know who to blame. I love that album. That's a great album. I love how things like that come together. Yep. Yeah. I did not know that. One thing I want to say about the Jamie Muir story, what you were describing about him being very Peter Gabriel-like in that era. Mm -hmm. I think if we go back to our What is Prague episode, we kind of made this argument. You get a captive audience of musicians together that are highly prolific. They're going to start feeding off of one another and pushing boundaries. Mm -hmm. Because these bands are all local to one another. They're all kind of in the same scene. Peter probably fed off of other people too, right? No, I agree. I think it's really, really cool to see that in the bigger context. Yeah. One of the things that intrigued me about the whole Jamie Muir thing, besides just his story and his personality, was the fact that here he is, this percussion guy alongside of Bill Bruford. So I looked for a clip that hopefully kind of captures that. So let's listen to a little bit of Lark's tongue and aspect. Kind of works. I, I sort of like that. I like that too. That's pretty out there. Next up, Starless and Bible Black. Yes. Again, this is the uh, first classic Crimson lineup with Fripp, John Wetton, Bill Bruford, and David Cross. A lot of this album was recorded live and then edited and blended with other stuff that they did in the studio, kind of Frank Zappa like. One of the tracks on here is called Trio. It's notable because they're a four piece, it was all based on an improv. And Bill Bruford couldn't figure out where to come in, so he just never did. And they all thought, what a great choice, because it's a great song. So he actually gets a songwriting credit for doing nothing on the song, because that was the right thing to do. I just think that's awesome. I don't, I'm not really familiar with this album. I'm familiar with a couple of songs. Mm-hmm. The song Starless, which they play in concert, it's not actually on that album. Interesting. Kind of like uh, Houses of the Holy is uh, not on Houses of the Holy. It's on Physical Graffiti. Reviewing for this episode, as we were going to record, the title immediately struck me because it's one of the most poignant lyrics, I think, on the Marillion album, Misplaced Childhood. And I would love to talk to Fish about this. I've wondered if when he wrote that line in the 80s, if he was referencing King Crimson or if he was referencing the original play. It comes from a play. the introduction by the narrator of this play called Under Milk Wood by the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. Red is next. David Cross, somehow or another, he left. He joined a convent too? <laughs> yeah, he became a nun. Exactly. He rang up Muir and was like, which... Dude, you were right. This sucks. <laughs> yeah, need a roommate? <laughs> it's funny, you know, you read Bill Bruford's views on playing with Crimson. 
it sounds like a lot of the sessions were brutal from a creative standpoint. It just sounds miserable. Like there was no room for anyone's ideas other than Bob's? <laughs> Bob? Bob, Bob Fritz. You like your buddies now? <laughs> you and Toya and Bob are like getting together on weekends? And- <laughs> yeah. Hey, Toya, is Bob there? I want to say very clearly, I am doing nothing with Toya. You're the guy in the in the mask that's behind. That's where you are on Sundays. <laughs> Little Bobby Fripp. <laughs> yeah, there are these personalities that pop out. And like when you tell stories like that, I'm really interested. Was it, fuck you, this is my band, go away. You're just like a hired gun. Or was it just the natural conflict of creativity was too much? Bruford, to me, has a history of really going in and out of a lot of bands. And this is the band he stays, I think, like five albums. Actually, he's there a really long time till the 80s. As much of a conflict as that was, he stuck around. This is the vibe I got from the reading. Brutal doesn't mean bad. It just means very challenging. Okay. Okay. So that gets to what I was asking. Yeah. Other people may not enjoy that. It sounds like he really did. And remember, he left a cush gig with Yes. Good point. He knew he was stepping into something much more challenging musically, and that's what he wanted. Okay. And again, he stayed with it, and he um, embraced it. Okay. Yeah, I think that answers what I was getting at, because, you know, some people, they take a job knowing that it's going to be really, really intense, but that's kind of what they're thriving off of, is that intensity. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but then there are some people that get into these bands and it's just conflict all the time, and it's not healthy for anyone, but for whatever reason, they just can't leave the marriage. I just can't give you up, Fripp. I'm just curious if you feel like writing styles have changed as you listen to these albums, as you go from Court of the Crimson King, Wake Up Poseidon, Starless and Bible Black. Absolutely. What do you hear that's, that you think changes as you go? I feel like the first four albums, before they adapted their improvisational writing style, it was really kind of a 60s sensibility. Yeah. There wasn't really as much intensity. King Crimson has an intense driving sound that hadn't really developed in those first three or four albums, because at that point, they're just writing you know, long songs and sweet. Mm-hmm. Then in kind of the second period, the Lark's Tongue and Aspic, the Red, that's when they start becoming, you know, Tool's step-parents, <laughs> where they have attitude. My era that I'm really familiar with is the early era. You know, I have definitely heard the members of Tool say that King Crimson was a huge influence on them, but I don't know which era of Crimson, because I'm only really familiar with these, like, first four albums or so. Sure, but I don't really hear a Tool sound in Crimson until much later, like Thrack. I was listening to it today in the car, and one of the things I picked up on is that there's a shift to a very bass-forward sound a very thumping bass forward sound that's very reminiscent of Tool to me. Yeah, I agree. I just don't think that happens until much later, not in the Discipline era. I see Red as kind of the end of the second era and Discipline as the beginning of the third. Then I'm probably even talking about the fourth because I would never call the Tony Levin sound a Tool sound. I do have one more question about these this early era before we move on, Craig. In the very early albums, And one of the things that appeals to me is there's a very politically aware sensibility in in the lyrics. Mm -hmm. Since I'm not as familiar with this kind of middle era that we're getting into, does that maintain or does that go away? I think it goes away. And I'm also not convinced it's as there as you are portending. The only one that really comes to mind is 21st century schizoid man. That's about Vietnam, you know. 
Moonchild is one that comes to mind as being um, very politically aware. I, don't, I actually don't know the words of that one. I just know Moonchild. And then Epitaph in particular. That song just bleeds political awareness to me about the looming nuclear threat and not trusting the people in power to keep us safe from that. Mm -hmm. A cautionary tale about developing a lot of science and then giving that science to people who aren't scientifically aware and can use it for political ends. See, that doesn't sound familiar. I know. I mean, that's all in Epitaph, in that one track. Well, I think one of the biggest single things you're pointing to is that's Peter Sinfield. Absolutely. In this middle part that we're in, late 70s, all through the 80s till mid to late 90s, that's a black hole for me when it comes to Crimson. But then when we get to level five, Thrack in the mid 90s, some of these more recent albums, it feels like that's kind of still there. Each album for King Crimson is a standalone period and time of songwriting based on all the stuff I read. Mm hmm. So for a given album, they'll be like, eh, what should we write about? Like Beat is about the Beat Generation, at the point where there's even a song called Neil and Jack and Me about Neil Cassidy and Jack Kerouac. Other albums refer to particular pieces of literature. So I think the thing is less about them wanting to be politically aware, but rather wanting to write albums and songs about a thing. Okay, that's totally fair. So before you leave this period, Craig, what are your thoughts on the album Red? I think Red's a great album. Okay. How about you? Yeah, I've always liked Red. I've always been a real Bruford and John Wetton fan, so I like that album a lot. So in your notes, you say fans like this album, but it's not well received. Mm -hmm. um, that seems like a contradiction to me. Is that critically not well received? Yeah. Okay. I got all my information from a combination of articles that are referenced on TGM Live, as well as uh, wiki pages. And the occasional other article that I found. Well, here's the other thing. Court of the Crimson King is their best-selling album. Serious? Yes. Yeah, I haven't been able to find total album sales, but I did find charting. And Red only charts up to 45 worldwide and spends one week in the top 100. And the Court of the Crimson King reached fifth worldwide and stayed on the charts for in the top 100 for 18 weeks. Do you think that's their best album? Uh, no, not not at all. I think in the Court of the Crimson King sounds like a very old album, like an old psychedelic 60s album. Yeah, I feel that way about their first four albums, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with that. My favorite albums are still Discipline and Three of a Perfect Pair. And so what was the criticism of the album? Generally, criticism of King Crimson albums is too dense, harkens back too much to old material, not necessarily trotting new ground. That's interesting for a band that's considered the progenitor of the entire prog movement. Yeah, but that's in hindsight, right? In the moment, you're just fighting against every other album on the charts. Yeah. You know, if that matters, because episode after episode is demonstrating that prog doesn't pay the bills, right? So to bring that back to Crimson, then, I wouldn't have really expect this in, the, in this era, and especially from a band like this, but they didn't really release singles. Right. Well, they did a couple. They did a couple. I mean, yeah, they did, but they didn't really do two singles from each record, right? Like no. you had singles from different records, 12 years apart or whatever. It didn't seem like they were really actively pursuing radio play either. You know, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. And as we talk about it and I think about it, it's kind of a two-edged thing. But I think Fripp always wanted to be 
well-received and do well, but also always wanted to be true to his vision of some music. It's like he didn't want to pander. He wanted people to come to his understanding and belief of what his music needed to be and that it was good. Okay, so was Robert Fripp wrong? When we look at King Crimson, I think they are the most right because they're constantly reinventing themselves to this day. Okay. They don't pander. They never went pop. And for the record, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, here. yeah, that's no, cool. Yeah, but I don't think it's a black and white answer either. Yeah. I was just talking to a young kid. He's like 17, 18 here in Denver. He's got a band. He made it very clear to me that this is what he wants to do with his life. And this kid was very methodical. He knows that in the current world, it's got to be YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. So he's making decisions about where he wants to take his band based on that reality because that's his goal is that kind of radio and financial success because he sees this as his career. The art is kind of secondary. So here, are we saying that Robert Fripp didn't really care about that and he was more focused on the art side of it? I think he cared very much, but he didn't want to change to adapt. He wanted people to come to King Crimson. He didn't want King Crimson to go commercial, for lack of a better word. I don't think you say Fripp is right or wrong. It's like you said. Fripp expected people to come to Crimson. I agree with that comment. Yeah. I agree with that too. I think everybody has to figure out how to deal with this and they're going to do it in their own way, including your 17-year-old friend. Well, I'll tell you what, let's segue into the, uh, the discipline beat three of a perfect pair time. That really was my gateway to King Crimson. Mm. October 30th, 1981, I saw King Crimson at the Tower Theater in Philly and I don't remember any of it because I wasn't really into them at the time, but I loved Adrian Blue. Then, you know, fast forward a couple years later, I moved to Denver and had a buddy who just couldn't get enough of discipline. He started playing and it's like, holy shit, this is great. That really was kind of my entree into them. It's my personal favorite King Crimson album. Yes. It's the first album that had two very good, very accomplished guitar players. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time that they didn't have a lyricist they instead had a singer-songwriter as one of the band members. That's really interesting. Adrian Blue wrote all the lyrics, I should say. This is a part, generally, as a black hole to me. I have a couple of these albums. I have three of a perfect pair. I have Discipline. Um, there are parts of Discipline, thanks to you guys, talking me through some of the stuff that I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. But I actually really love the early records. Mm -hmm. I love Discipline, too. I think that is the best album. But I'm curious why you love it, Craig. Is it mostly because of Adrian Ballou? It's It has to be. Like I say, I'm a huge Adrian Ballou fanboy, and his fingerprints are on every song. I agree with that. And to me, this is the first time Crimson almost has a progressive jazz kind of sound to it. Yeah. And that's really why I fell in love with this one and Three of a Perfect Pair, because that's where you get the different time signatures going on the same bars. And um, I just thought that was completely fascinating. And I'm going to play a track off this album. This is my favorite King Crimson song, Frame by Frame. When 
you say that Adrian Ballou has his fingerprints all over it, what are you hearing that, that tells you that? Um, I hear the melodies, the guitars, his voice. He's a guitar wizard. And this segues into the clip I have for this particular album. Fripp was doing a lot of Frippertronics at the time, you know, stuff with tape loops and delays and crazy shit like that. And between him doing that and Adrian Ballou doing Elephant Talk and stuff like that, Fellahu Jinji, it's like, man, what a great brew. Every song. So I was trying to find an example of Frippertronics. So Frippertronics, it was a thing that Fripp rigged up. I don't think he invented it, but he used it a lot, where he had one tape deck feeding another tape deck and then having the output of the second tape deck, as well as the regular guitar uh, going into a mixer and creating like a loop and infinite sustains and stuff like that. Oh, that's what he's doing on stage when we saw him live. Yeah. You and I saw him where he would, it was like a little echoplex with a tape loop. Mm -hmm. I think that's what he's doing on this track, but I'm not sure. I couldn't find anywhere where it said, yep, they use it on here. Okay. But that was about the time period when he was starting to do a lot of that stuff. So this is from Sheltering Sky. Most of the uh, the leads there are Fripp, because I know in that particular song I've seen a bunch of video clips of it. Adrian's just kind of strumming. Okay. And that's also the first album with Tony Levin. Yes. And this is the first of three albums that maintain the same lineup. Right. There is a quote from Rolling Stone, says, Here's hoping that unlike every other King Crimson lineup, this band of virtuosos stays together long enough to transform all of their experiments into innovations. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Discipline was very transformative for King Crimson. You were calling it kind of jazzy. Some people called it new wave because that's kind of what was going on in the very early 80s. Doesn't sound new wave, though. I don't know if I hear that myself. Let's see. Discipline is 81. Yeah. When does Talking Heads start? Uh, 77, because they have an album called Talking Heads 77. To me, there was a lot of overlap with Talking Heads in here. Well, you know, Adrian Blue played with Talking Heads. Yes. Right. In several albums. Yep. Adrian Blue, man, he freaking played with everybody. And I think this might be the first time I heard anybody play a Chapman stick. Mm. But then they get Trey Gunn, and he also brings a Chapman stick with him. Yep. Yeah, Chapman stick and a saxophone. Yep. I'm telling you, he's trying to invent jazz. I'm not sure what else there is to say about Discipline, but they weren't even going to be King Crimson. They were going to be just some other band that Fripp was putting together. I actually heard they were going to be the band Discipline. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, let's just do King Crimson. Let's stick with the brand. Because that'll help album sales. When do we get to the projects happening? Are they already happening at this point? No. They have this three-album run. Then they take a break for a while. The projects go from 97 to 99. Okay. And then kind of sporadically after that. So we're still way before that. Yeah, so we'll get to the projects. Beat is meant to be an homage to the Beat generation. And I have a clip called Neurotica which is about New York City, so let's play that real quick. Neurotica, I swear at the swarming herds, I sweat the foul 
like that. See, that's just a great Adrian Ballou song with it Robert Fripp as a special guest star. That sounded like um, Police. Really? I hear Tool in that song, right? That's a leading comping bass line, but the guitar is actually there to support the bass line. Hmm. It's an intense groove. I could take that mm-hmm. and I could put that on Anima or I could put that on 10,000 Days. <laughs> well, to be fair to this particular song, this song has a lot of parts. And they all sort of sound different. I just grabbed one chunk of it. This song's about New York in the 80s. And uh, I lived there for a year about that time. And it's like, yeah, they kind of capture it. It was good. And I didn't like this album at first. But after kind of digging into it, it's growing on me. Mm. Cool. Three of a Perfect Pair is next, which I really do like. I own this on vinyl, in fact. Mm. That's a great album. As much fun as it seemed like they had with Discipline. Once again, the Robert Fripp self-destruction mechanism was starting to kick in, and side one is like an Adrian Ballou half album, and side two is like a Fripp, let's, you know, let her rip kind of stuff. Here is a clip. She wouldn't need to be a bird without a wing, or be a servant to a telephone She could be sleeping in the comfort of a rubber band. Talking Heads. Yeah, Talking Heads, Adrian Blue solo stuff, a little bit of Tony Levin playing some stick. Great thing. Amazing they got this album out. Hmm. Anyway, those are the three albums in the uh, classic four-piece. Tony Levin, Bill Bruford, Robert Fripp, Adrian Ballou. To me, the classic King Crimson lineup. Okay. And then the next is kind of their last uh, bunch of albums. 1995 to 2003, you got your Thrack, Construction of Light, Power to Believe. And Tony, I'm going to lean on you because I actually don't know a whole lot about that. Before I get into my thoughts on this album and this period of Crimson, what was going on in Crimson? Why a decade hiatus here? I think Fripp tended to burn out. Toya kept him busy building stuff. Yeah, right. He had a honeydew list like you wouldn't believe. Well, I do know that him and Adrian Ballou were not getting along because Adrian Ballou at the time had a lot of production experience and mm-hmm. recording studio experience and experience with a lot of amazing acts. And I imagine it's just two very strong egos trying to coexist and didn't work well. I read this interview with Tool. They talk about King Crimson. I go back and I get the early records, consume them, love them. All the stuff that you guys just talked about, like this was a great lineup and, and stuff like that. I have really no awareness of, even though I own those albums, I don't listen to those albums. Interesting. But I listen to Thrack. I listen to Construction of Light. I listen to Level 5. I listen to Power to Believe. Looking at just Thrack, for example, between Three of a Perfect Pair and Vroom, there's a little more than a decade to this actual studio album. Mm-hmm. On Thrack specifically, there's some things I find curious that I really like, but then there's some things I think play into the sound of the album. The first is, we are in 1995. In 1994, Nine Inch Nails had brought out the downward spiral and really brought the industrial sound to the forefront. Heavily computer mixed, recorded, was a thing people were trying to capture. So if we go back to our definition of prog, of taking whatever is and trying to push it, that would have been the zeitgeist that this album is coming out in. But then if we look at the producer of this album in addition to the quote-unquote king crimson credit for producer dave bottrell produced this album for them Mm -hmm. 
he has a, a CV a mile long of producing industrial bands. So he's bringing that sound. So if we take Dave Bottrell's CV, here are some bands that he was a producer on. Mm-hmm. Dream Theater's Scenes from a Memory, Tools Lateralis, Tools Salival, Tools Anima. So if we want to take that tool sound, that's Thrack to me. Hmm. For 15-year-old teenage Tony, I was like, oh yeah, hell yeah, I'm all over this. When I described the production of the previous albums as being very bright, mm-hmm. this album distinctively is not. This album is very down and earthy, and it's much more gritty. But you like that? I love it. Well, I got a clip of level five. When we go see King Crimson now, that's what it sounds like. That, to me, sounds like Tool. Yeah. That's got such a Justin Chancellor feel to it on bass. Yeah. And that's Trey Gunn, by the way. It's not Tony Lemon. Yeah. Pat Mastoletto on drums. Yes. That sound, Dave Brothrell also worked with Silverchair during the mid-90s. It was a grungy, kind of pop grungy band. That sounds like a lot of that to me. That actually makes me want to buy Thrack. This isn't on Thrack, though, so get the power to believe instead. Okay. Let me read a quote from a dude named Lindsay Planer of All Music, writes that level five is so intense that it could be easily mistaken for the likes of Tool, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, or KMFDM. Every band in Tony's wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, how much of Thrack and, uh, and these three are time and place for you? Probably all of it. Albums like Wake of Poseidon, Court of the Crimson King. I appreciate it at the time. I still felt like I was reaching across some kind of chasm to connect to something that really wasn't mine. That makes sense. But Thrax sounded like my music. That's for you. And I credit all of that to Dave Bottrell. I do not credit Robert Fripp with any of this. Oh, oh I, that's strong, man. Yeah, I think you're going out on a limb there. The re- reason I say that is I think that the mix probably came to Dave with a very different sound. I, I think you're reaching there. It was probably brighter. I mean, I do hear his strong influence. I still absolutely hear... Uh, Robert Fripp flavored King Crimson song, though. Well, I went out and bought the album after you recommended it so strongly, Tony. And I think half the album is very atmospheric and light, like Walking on Air or the Inner Garden series. Okay, so maybe, maybe I was a little too strong there, but I don't think very much. <laughs> Here's another reason why you're wrong. Production techniques have changed. Okay. But there's still kind of 
the atmospheric, there's like a drone in there, and then there's some guitar, some frippy guitar in there. Mm-hmm. The drums are certainly more up front. The mix absolutely is different. Well, play level five again. Oh, level five. That was a Craig one, but I, I have that here. Guitar-wise, that sounds totally fripped to me. I could pull that out of a lineup of other prog songs and pick the King Crimson song. I agree with you entirely on that. I agree with you on that on level five. I agree with you on that on The Power to Believe. I agree with you on Happy to Be Happy with you with what you have to be happy with. I don't agree with you on Thrack. Can you play that little bit of Thrack again? Sure. Let's listen to Thrack one more time. Okay. I'm going to give Tony one more chance to show his ignorance on this topic. So first of all, there's a good chance that's uh, Adrian Blue playing a lot of that guitar. Mm-hmm. But I still feel like I could pull that out of a lineup. Okay. What does Dave Buttrell have to say about it? Does he credit himself for creating Thrack? That's me, because taking his discography of what he's worked on, it sounds like, like he... Oh, I hear the sound, definitely. But to say Fripp didn't have anything to do with it, I just can't do that. Fripp came with the music, but I think Dave Bottrell molded it into a thing, right? Dave Bottrell's first record working with Tool was Anima. Previously, it was Sylvia Massey right. on Undertow. The Tool on Anima sounds nothing like the Tool on Undertow. He has a very distinctive fingerprint that changes the sound of this band. And I think the same thing happened to King Crimson here. Yeah, I can't go that far. Hey, listeners, it's Tony here, breaking the fourth wall to talk a little bit more about my comments. Now that I probably have most of you sharpening your pitchforks regarding my comments on Dave Bottrell's influence on the album Thrack. I have gone back and since listened to most of those mid 80s albums that I previously didn't have a lot of exposure with. And I now see that there is more of a natural progression from where I originally started in the 60s and 70s albums through the 80s and into the sound we ultimately get on Thrack. That said, I do credit Dave Bottrell a lot with the sonic personality of Thrack and beyond because I do want to give him credit for bringing the bass line more forward vis-a-vis Tool and their sound, as well as compressing the album and making it have less sonic dynamic range. I think that that gives it a more pronounced and punchy sound, and that's really what I was going for in my comment. Anyway, so uh, is there anything else you want to say about that particular period, Tony? Because after that comes the projects. I don't think so. I think most of the albums in this period have kind of that same vibe. Not quite as intense as Thrack. Mm -hmm. Not as bright from a production perspective. I think that it ends up being a more balanced production, which I really, really enjoy. It's one of my favorite tracks of all time comes from this period and it's happy with what you have to be happy with. Just go listen to that track. It's just a fun track because it's very self-referential. 
One of the things I think is interesting about this period and comparing it to the previous period of discipline, beat three of a perfect pair, is strong first album, strong third album, little bit of a lull in the middle. I do like Power to Believe. I do like Thrack from what I remember of it. Construction of Light never really resonated with me. And so these albums don't do well at all. So forget the fact that the first and third are good and the second one's bad. They all suck as far as album sales go. Well, when we did the Prog Jazz episode, you were talking about it in terms of which genre generated commercial success. I mean, you look at the Billboard charts, this was 150th. You know, it's a weird deal, right? I mean, this gets back to what we were saying. Fripp is making King Crimson music. Yeah. And this is what King Crimson music is to him now. Okay. I don't know the the ins and outs of his bank account, but you know, maybe he had reached a certain point of I don't need to like be successful like commercially to support myself and I can go off and I can experiment musically. Well, I mean, he's a session guy too. He has played on a lot of stuff. He's also got solo albums. He wrote some of the chimes for Windows Vista. Yeah, how'd you like to be getting residuals for that? So, I'm also curious that the last album they do that's studio, that's not project, is 2003, correct? Yeah, Power to Believe. Mm-hmm. But how does King Crimson stay relevant if their last album is 2003, 18 years ago? Well, you know, that's a really interesting point. Or is it just a very rabid fan base? Well, you know, I was thinking about that when we just saw him a couple months back. Right. And Fiddler's Green, which is not a large venue, was not filled up. Yeah, it wasn't. None of the back lawn was taken, so... Okay. And by the way, just to kind of change the subject, you know, Rick Wakeman's doing this Grumpy Old Man tour. Right. And they're canceling a ton of shows. And I think they're saying it's because of COVID, but I think they're not selling seats. Okay. Yeah. The one that I was going to go to, they rebooked it a week later at a very small venue in New York. Okay. Yeah. There is a fan base. They are rabid, uh, but they're also old and there's not a lot of them. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. This doesn't help my case much at all, but you know, the projects don't go as back far back as 2003 because we do have scarcity of miracles which was 2011 yes that's that's right what is that i don't know what that is i didn't see that so it's a uh jacksick frippin collins uh crimson project it's called a scarcity of miracles it's very jazzy to me would you describe it that way i do and that's uh, that's actually one of my favorite project albums so when we all were working together and lee and i were first getting to know each other's musical tastes he walked in and dropped this on my desk one day and I went home and listened to it, and I was like, oh my God, where has this been in my Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, and in the context of a King Crimson conversation where I ju- literally just said, I love Thrak, this is the anti-Thrak. <laughs> You're right. And, about that. <laughs> and I love it. I love it to pieces. So is that considered a King Crimson album, though? It's a Crimson Project. It's listed as Crimson Project. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it looks like they opened for Dream Theater at one point. Crimson Project? Yeah, the Crimson Project has toured the United States twice, performed in Russia and Japan. There are official live recordings available from these tours, including the Dream Theater shows. That's interesting. I feel like there's two different projects that we're talking about here. There's a thing called Crimson Project that did this album you guys were talking about. Yes. But there's also a thing called Projects that went from 97 to 99 officially. Okay. It was an experiment, you know, another experiment. Yeah. For them to get out on the road do a ton of improvising and see what fell out. And it sounds like uh, power to believe is what came out of that. Interesting. Okay. So that was a great trip 
down the uh, King Crimson chronology. Tony, do you have any closing thoughts about King Crimson? I think I just want to thank you for filling in some gaps for me, especially in that middle part of the Oreo cookie where I didn't have as much visibility, especially I liked your all's talk about the cohesive lineup in the 80s. Um, Mm -hmm. Makes me want to go back and listen to them a bit more. How about you, Lee? Uh, any, Any closing thoughts about? Thanks for doing such a thorough job on this, man. You really covered it well. Cool. You did the same for me. You really filled in a bunch of gaps because I sort of have hits and misses. And Tony, you really drove me. I wanted to go grab Thrack and um, go pick up some of the grungier stuff because I was never really into that. Do it. I am going to do it. And I'm going to listen to Crimson Project because uh, I've never heard of it until just now. Look at that. We all picked up something new to listen we to. We all learned something. Yeah. We all learned something new. Awesome. I just want to close and say, as difficult as it sounds like Fripp may have been to work with, I also give him huge, huge props for having a vision, staying yeah. true to it, and for lack of a better word, for not selling out. And being willing to adapt. And being willing to change. Right. Really, every album was different. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a different lineup, different style, different sensibility, he's adapted and changed, and his live shows are still great. We didn't really talk about this, but I love the three drummer lineup. That is, I you do know, too. Oh. you would think it's hokey. It sounds fucking awesome. And it how does. do you even come up with that? You know, I know we've seen it the last couple of times they've come through and, and just mm-hmm. really, really wonderful. Yeah, so yeah, cheers to them for not turning into a Genesis uh, <laughs> or yes. All right. Thank you very much, Craig. That was enlightening. Well-researched. Yes. (laughs) I need to definitely take some screenshots and post those things on Twitter. Yes. Because, like, you did a superb job. It was like a syllabus with, like, exams and quizzes, and it was nice. Next time, can you post cliff notes? (laughs) Yes. Because that that was a bit. Here's my my 18 pages of King (laughs) Crimson notes so you guys can follow along. So you need to submit that to like the music department at CU so you can get your honorary PhD. Um, <laughs> that was your dissertation. In Robert Fripp. <laughs> um, as we exit, like we normally do, we like to talk about recommendations and where people can go next. Uh, Lee, what do you think that people should listen to as we exit this episode? Um, I am a big fan of Discipline. That's my favorite album by King Crimson. I really like some of the branches that have come off King Crimson, especially Projects. And so I highly recommend A Scarcity of Miracles. Yeah, definitely. What about you, Craig? You know, my favorite uh, period of time is the Adrian Blue time. But since uh, doing all the research for this episode, I've really been going back and listening very critically to Lark's Tongue and Aspic. Um, Really enjoying the crap out of that. Um, It's got a great lineup. It's got Jamie Muir, who, again, is that super colorful guy. It's got the lineup, it's got good songs, and they're really starting to come into their own, if you can sort of say that about King Crimson, but they're becoming kind of improvisational. Fripp's really starting to feel like more of a songwriter, I guess. But anyway, I'm just really enjoying that. So check out Lark's Tongue and Aspic. Awesome. For me, I'm going to come at this from a different angle. So people that have been listening for a little while know that I care a lot about production and producers and the role of the studio in a sound. And I know that probably people are coming for me with some of my comments in this episode, especially about the role of Dave Bottrell. But my recommendation would be to go look up his discography, especially the stuff around the mid 90s, and go listen to other albums that he Mm -hmm. produced during that time. I think that that will make my point for me. 
and this is where I want to say thank you to you, Craig, I had a hole in my King Crimson discography that was much more relevant than I thought it was. Hmm. Um, that early to mid 80s period was more formative for what we ultimately got in the 90s, which I was a, a blind spot for me. But I still think that that album, Thrack and Beyond, production matters and, and the role of a producer matters. And I, I think that if people go listen to some of the other Dave Bottrell stuff, that that'll become more apparent than I can say in our episode. So that's cool. I, I went and got Thrack because of you, because of your comments. I, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Awesome. As we exit, don't forget that you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, thanks to Craig at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear what you have to say about the show, what you're liking, what you're not liking, suggestions for the future, or if you just think one or more of us is an idiot. If you'd like to show us some support, it's easy. You can support us non-financially simply by subscribing and liking the podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. Also, if your podcast platform does allow you to leave a review, please take a moment and leave a review. We'd really appreciate that. Also, don't forget that you can support us financially now. We have an account on Coffee over at ko-fi.com slash up3show or on Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. If you threw some money over our way, we can help make sure we keep the episodes up forever. Thanks, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Hey folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.